History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 90, The Conflagration. I'm starting to get over that cold, but who knows if you can still hear it in my voice. My throat's still a bit sore. But last time, we covered events in the Western Empire, including check-ins with Greece during the Boeotian War, sparked by Sparta's repeated violations of the king's peace. For the first three decades of Artaxerxes II's reign, the Western Empire was marked by outbursts of dissent and rebellion. Cyrus the Younger's attempted coup seems to have opened the floodgates. From providing cover for Egypt and Cyprus to secede, to putting Western Cilicia and all of Paphlagonia at odds with the great king, and to prompting Sparta's invasion. Cyrus's march to Canaxa directly led to a whole series of conflicts. Egypt and Cyprus presented particular problems. Spreading the war into the Levant and occupying many of the resources of Achaemenid Assyria as Artaxerxes and his satraps tried to get things under control. The king's peace and subsequent defeat of Evagoras gave Persia some breathing room. Caria was made into its own satrapy, seriously weakening Lydia under its new ruler Autophrodates. By retaking Cilicia and Paphlagonia, the young half-Carian general Datames ascended to become the new satrap of Cappadocia, apparently taking Cilicia with him as part of the new province. Pharnabazus was promoted to become the military commander on the Egyptian front, while his son Ariobarzanes became satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, and the new Keranos in the west, though with a slightly more limited scope than Cyrus. This was essential to be prepared in case the Boeotian War spilled across Greece's borders and into Anatolia, but the threat never manifested. It did come close. True to the terms of the peace, the islands of the Aegean were now independent, and many right up to the Persian coastline joined the Second Athenian League, a formal alliance led by Athens and Thebes against Sparta. Naval confrontations between the two sides drifted as far east as Naxos, so it's no surprise if the Persians worried. Finally, in 373 BC, Pharnabazus was forced to abandon his second campaign in Egypt, demanding retribution against his Athenian mercenary general Iphicrates, who instead became the leading commander in Athens for 372. Today, we'll start by following Iphicrates back to Greece, 
Despite his grandiose promise at the end of the Corinthian War to battle against anyone who did not accept his peace, Artaxerxes II was mostly happy to let his Greek subjects handle this one, so long as it didn't affect tribute payments. That's right, his Greek subjects. For all the talk about every city being independent, Artaxerxes had done what his forefathers could not. He had subdued Greece. He dictated terms to the Greeks, could back Greek rulers of his choosing, and dictate policy. When forming the Second League, the Greeks who supported the king's peace painstakingly laid out policies to appease Persian demands. Generations of great kings had tried and failed to make Greece their own. Darius and Xerxes had succeeded with threats, but failed when those threats were tested. Artaxerxes I had scored a propaganda victory with the Peace of Callias, but it was in name only. Only as Darius II was taking his dying breath did Persia really exert any political control in Greece for the first time, and it evaporated as soon as Cyrus the Younger disputed the succession. Artaxerxes II bested them all. At long last, he realized that despite the outward appearance of cities and temples, that Greece could not be governed as a province or vassal kingdom. The Greeks themselves were just incapable of accepting that kind of central authority. They had to be ruled like the fractious tribal people they were, with policies similar to those employed to control the Saka on the northeast. Go, do what you want with each other and your unsettled neighbors, but you obey the king of kings. The Boeotian War was the test to prove whether or not this strategy could work. Iphicrates returned to a country embroiled in a seeming stalemate. The two sides went back and forth across northern Attica and southern Boeotia without anyone gaining the upper hand for more than a moment. It was the perfect environment for him to apply his novel tactics— tried and tested with great success on the coast of Egypt. Smaller, more maneuverable shields, longer swords and spears to deal damage to the enemy before they could even reach you. You'd think these were the exact kind of advantages that the Second Athenian League would want. But there's a reason the basic style of hoplite warfare had changed very little in the preceding 150 years. Change is hard and scary. What if it doesn't work? Iphicrates took command of the Peltasts, and equipped them as more lightly armored versions of the mercenaries he'd commanded in Egypt. He was able to get his reforms adopted by the Athenian marines, who were glad for the added maneuverability at sea. However, most of the allies were reticent to adopt the Iphicratean reforms for their whole armies. The only slight exception was Thebes. Despite their nominal cause being a demand for democracy in Thebes, 
the war had led the cities of Boeotia toward an oligarchy of their own making. Each year they elected the Boetarchs, literally the rulers of Boeotia, a council of seven generals representing the people of Boeotia, but in time of war, those generals became very influential. In lieu of term limits, there was very little incentive to depose successful generals. To top it off, four of the seven came from Thebes itself, correctly representing the city's large portion of the population, but concentrating power in their interests. Two of the Theban Boetarchs saw value in Aphricrates' proposals. Epaminidas and Pelopidas equipped the Thebans with longer spears. Not ready to abandon the hoplon shield itself, they settled for toying with their formations, mixing cavalry and peltasts with hoplites. This did give their battle lines some advantage. By then, the situation was unsettling many in the Persian government. In 371, Artaxerxes dispatched another round of ambassadors to get the Greeks to settle down. At this point, even Sparta wanted out and happily agreed to abide by the king's peace. But once again, Thebes refused to allow the Boeotian cities to sign independently. Officially, the Peloponnesian League and most of the Second Athenian League were in accord but Thebes refused, making the whole issue moot. A few weeks after these negotiations, the new Theban army faced Sparta near the Boeotian village of Leuctra. Now, historians are split on the significance or the uniqueness of this battle. Some say that historians like Xenophon over-exaggerate the innovations seen in the Theban lines. Others see Epaminidas as a great hero reorganizing Greek warfare forevermore. The latter seems to be falling out of favor these days, as more and more historians of Greek warfare reassess the details of the most literary and exciting narratives of history for things like actual material evidence and logic and physics. The thing that holds me up on agreeing with them wholeheartedly is that something about this battle had to have excited its contemporaries to make them remember it as such an important and unique event. There's also the obvious issue that will come up more in upcoming episodes that Thebes did innovate militarily in the coming decades in ways that would alter Greek history forevermore. I'm going to give a version of the somewhat more traditional narrative here, but bear in mind that these tactics may not have been nearly as unique or innovative as they are usually presented. Typical Greek armies put their most prestigious veteran troops on the right wing of their lines to make up for the slightly less well-defended position that came with holding their shields on the left arm. 
That meant that the inexperienced new recruits held the left side. Taking command of the Boeotian army, Epaminondas inverted this by concentrating not just his veterans, but also his cavalry on the left, thus facing Sparta's most inexperienced allies. These Theban veterans included the Sacred Band of Thebes. 300 veteran warriors composed of 150 homosexual couples, with the reasoning that everyone would be less likely to abandon their lover in battle. Who knows if that reasoning worked, but they were also hardened veterans, so it was a scary crew of gay guys either way. On top of that, the left flank was four times as deep as a normal Greek column, and each column outside of that strike force was staggered, forming a kind of wedge formation with a wall of Peltast missile troops in front of them. The missile troops are not terribly unique to this battle, but the way they are implemented here certainly had an impact. The Theban charge shattered the Spartan force just as intended. They had more cavalry, and somewhat better tactics, even if the Peloponnesian League could technically field more infantry in raw numbers. As expected, the Spartan right flank broke apart, suffering heavy losses and retreating as the huge Theban columns surged in and began encircling the Spartan force. The half-wedge formation allowed the rest of the Theban army to swing around the Spartan left as they shifted to try and deal with the Thebans at their rear. Not only was it a Spartan defeat, but it was THE Spartan defeat. Sparta itself had sent just short of 1,000 hoplites, and more than half of them were killed. It broke Sparta's military capacity forever. Victims of their own success, the Spartans had grown wealthy in their time as the dominant power in Greece, but that wealth was heavily concentrated among those who were already rich. That's what happens when you're legally led by an oligarchy. The problem was, to serve as a Spartan hoplite, you had to be a citizen, and to be a citizen, you had to meet certain property requirements. Their own accumulation of wealth disenfranchised much of the population and shrank the size of the Spartan army. Losing four or five hundred men in an afternoon, including King Cleombrotus himself, was a devastating blow. They chased the Spartans out of Boeotia, burning Plataea to the ground in the process as a punishment for allowing itself to be captured by Sparta for a second time. Then the Thebans stepped back to consolidate the powers of the Boeotian League by compelling Spartan allies in the north to join them. This angered Athens and the other members of the Second League. This wasn't what they were fighting for. Thebes was now no better than Sparta, violating the king's peace and seeking open domination over the whole Greek world. Thebes voluntarily exited from the Second Athenian League 
and forced the other Boeotian cities and their supporters to do the same. Athens and the remaining Second League members made peace with Sparta. Officially, that brought the Boeotian War to an end according to most history books. But Thebes certainly didn't see it that way. They went on the offensive and invaded the Peloponnese with the support of all the cities that had grown restless under Spartan domination in 370. The crowning jewel of this campaign was burning their way through Sparta's home territory in Laconia and continuing on to Messenia, where they liberated the Helots. The entire region had been virtually enslaved by Sparta for more than 200 years, but was now restored to independence under Theban auspices, but more independence than they had seen in generations. With their allies turning against them and their traditional workforce cut in half, Sparta was dead in the water. Despite enough uproar to put him on trial, Epimonidas and his fellow Boearchs ascended to all but a dictatorship in their own territory, and the Boeotian League seemed on track to follow in the footsteps of Athens and Sparta. To combat this, both of Greece's previous hegemons dispatched their ambassadors. This included the aging Antalkidas, who headed into the Persian heartland once again, going to Artaxerxes himself to seek Persian aid in restoring the king's peace. They were followed inland by Pelopidas, the second man in Thebes after Epimonidas, who joined them at the royal court in winter of 369. The three embassies from Greece were treated to all of the spectacles and creature comforts of Achaemenid Susa as they negotiated with the king and his advisors. Diodorus is happy to make it sound like Artaxerxes dismissed the others out of hand, but it is more likely that the great king was forced to accept some realpolitik. By now... Artaxerxes had many issues in the West on his mind, especially the reconquest of Egypt. He had no interest in getting dragged back to Greece. Pelopidas told the great king that Thebes had no ambitions at sea, and no real care what type of government individual cities had so long as they worked with Thebes. He reminded Artaxerxes of the dangers of allowing Athenian naval power or Spartan militarism, and told stories of the Battle of Leuctra to the Persian court. He also boasted about how, even then, his countrymen were liberating more cities from Spartan domination, including the long-oppressed Helots, who had been left in a gray area by the king's peace. Artaxerxes consented to allowing Thebes to have its Boeotian League if it meant relative peace in the Aegean. When the ambassadors returned home, Athens was furious and executed their representative on accusations of bribery. Sparta lamented, but was too embroiled in the fallout of the second Theban campaign against them to do anything. 
so Pelopidas was quickly reassigned to deal with trouble in the north. After just a few years in power, King Alexander II of Macedon had been assassinated, and his kingdom was on the verge of a civil war. The Macedonian nobility called on Thebes, the clear military power in Greece, for help. Pelopidas went north and settled things in 368, installing a regent for Alexander II's younger brother Perdiccas III, and taking their youngest brother back to Thebes as a political hostage to ensure Macedon's good behavior. The 14-year-old Prince Philip was there as an insurance policy, but the Thebans ensured that he would want for nothing and received an education befitting someone of his station. He was tutored in politics by Epimonidas, in warfare by Pelopidas, and became the latter's pederastic lover. Philip became the ward of Pomenes as well, a Theban general in command of the Sacred Band, and would remain in Thebes for three years as all three of his teachers took their city to new and ever grander heights. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today.
But for now, we return to the south, where Pharnabazus was recalled to the Persian court after failing to take Egypt in 373. Datames was the satrap of Cappadocia and took control of the invasion force after Pharnabazus's departure. We don't know what happened to the former satrap of Phrygia after this. He was at least 60, so he may just have died of natural causes. But he is never heard from again, and it is at least implied that he may have been executed for his failings. Before he could do anything about Egypt, Datames was forced to take some of the invasion force north and deal with a rebellion in Cataonia, a region of southwestern Cappadocia near the intersection with Cilicia, Syria, and Lydia. So, roughly at the source of the Euphrates River, if you happen to already be looking at a map. A local ruler had started raiding into neighboring territories. Normally, this wouldn't be that big of a deal. As we've seen, lots of people in the empire were free to raid their neighbors and could just be dealt with by local garrisons if need be. But local garrisons were stretched thin, and the Cataonians had gotten it into their heads to raid the royal caravans carrying tribute from Anatolia to Babylon. Datames loaded up some soldiers onto ships and sailed to Issus in Cilicia, then marched on Cataonia from there. They moved with speed and caught the enemy unawares, capturing the rebel Cataonian king and replacing him with a pro-Persian governor. Ariobarzanes dispatched one of his sons, Mithridates, to take the Cataonian and deliver him to Artaxerxes for public execution. This Mithridates was currently serving as the governor of Chius in Mysia. Interesting to note that there are a few scattered references throughout the later history of Anatolia, which suggest that this Mithridates may just be the eponymous ancestor of the Mithridatic kings of Pontus, including the famed Mithridates VI, the poison king who gave the Roman Empire immense trouble centuries later. That would also make Mithridates VI one of the last truly powerful Achaemenid descendants ruling over part of his ancestors' empire. Datames then returned to Acre, planning to invade Egypt sometime in 370 or 369, when he got a letter from some of his friends back in the royal court. They warned him that Artaxerxes would have his head if another Egyptian war failed. If his life was on the line, Datames wanted a fight where he felt like he could stand a chance to get something out of it. After four-plus failed campaigns in Egypt, that wasn't going to be it. So he gathered his own levied troops and marched north, returning to Cappadocia and leaving the invasion force under the command of a Greek mercenary general. And poof, just like that, 
any semblance of exact chronology evaporates. We've enjoyed a relatively precise set of dates in the past few episodes. Xenophon is always sure to mark the coming of winter and spring, and Diodorus conveniently dates everything to the reigns of Athenian archons and Roman consuls. But Xenophon's Hellenica remains focused on Hellas, aka Greece, and Diodorus compresses all of the events in Anatolia for the next decade into just 361. The only real way to track any of it is to try and line up different military campaigns with the years, and in that, the Roman military historian Polyinus very helpfully provides a few stories about datamies not seen in our other sources. Immediately after returning home, Datames invaded Paphlagonia again from the east. This was an easy cover story. Hearing that Datames had gotten pulled to the north and was fighting in Paphlagonia would hardly be a surprise at court, even if the details of another Paphlagonian revolt hadn't reached them yet. Despite being a good cover against Artaxerxes, the invasion of Paphlagonia got the attention of Ariobarzanes, who officially ruled that region as part of Hellespontine Phrygia. Datames was able to meet with his fellow satrap, the apparent Keranos, and come to an agreement. Datames had no interest in trying and failing to take a country that would fight tooth and nail against him and no single satrap could hope to stand against the great king. But not so long ago, one man had stood against the king of kings, and very nearly won. With the full force of Anatolia behind him, Cyrus the Younger had nearly taken control of the empire. Imagine what he could have done if he just tried to secede. That's what Datames proposed an alliance with Ariobarzanes to prepare for a defensive war against Artaxerxes, to either demand more privileges as his governors, or leave the empire altogether. Ariobarzanes agreed to the plan, but neither of them were ready to openly revolt just yet. Instead, Datames would keep finding pretexts to stay in Cappadocia, and Ariobarzanes would use his influence to get their neighbors on board, or otherwise stir up resistance against Artaxerxes. It would hardly be difficult, given the tenuous state of things in Anatolia these days. This is the primary reason that I think Pharnabazus was executed after his failure in Egypt. Ariobarzanes was an Achaemenid. Though only a distant cousin at this point, he could trace his roots back to Pharnaces, the brother of Darius the Great. His family had served the empire loyally since its foundation. So why revolt now? Well, if his own father had just been executed, and Artaxerxes was lopping off heads and dismissing satraps left, right, and center, well, Ariobarzanes was hardly special. One miscalculation or failure to handle the Greeks properly, and it was off to Susa for punishment. 
A Caymanid historian, Maria Brosius, also speculates that he may only have been the acting satrap, waiting until his younger half-brother Artabazus came of age, because Artabazus was the son of Apame, the daughter of Artaxerxes II. Given the level of influence Ariobarzanes seems to have had, I'm not totally convinced, though just the possibility may have been one of his determining factors. In the last few decades, the general trend of Achaemenid studies has been to downplay this rebellion. By condensing all of the events into a single year, Diodorus obviously exaggerates some of what was going on, though his description has given this event its name. The Great Satrap's Revolt Evidence is sketchy to say the least. Separated from the real chronology and trying to reconcile all of the information into a single climactic brawl, Diodorus's account is cast into doubt. And Nepos's hagiography of Datames is only really a glimpse into the events. Other information has to be gleaned from local inscriptions, coinage, and one-off references by other Greek authors. It's also messy that some scholars, including the eminent Pierre Briant, even doubt the veracity of some of the revolt's participants. But if we're honest, their evidence isn't much stronger than the ancient authors. Personally, I think it's a bit bold of us, separated by an additional 2,000 years, and without any of our primary source material, to claim that they just have it all wrong. I'm going to give the ancients some benefit of the doubt, and try to weave the story around the available evidence. So ballpark estimate, we're in 368 BCE, and Datames embarks on a campaign against the Pisidians. Once again, nobody at court was going to be shocked to hear that Datames decided to deal with another revolt from frequent rebels while he was in the neighborhood. This revolt was quickly becoming a family affair. Two of Datames' sons and his father-in-law were in command of the troops, but one of those sons died fighting the Pisidians. However, Datames' father-in-law was Mithrobarzanes, an otherwise loyal Persian noble who just got dragged into this because his son-in-law refused to risk his neck in Egypt. Throw a dead grandson into the mix, and Mithrobarzanes deserted, taking his cavalry and going over to the Pisidian camp, with the intention of informing Artaxerxes of what was really going on. Datames pursued him. Soon after Mithrobarzanes had joined the Pisidians, who actually weren't rebelling for once, Datames ordered his men to charge. It threw their camp into disarray. Thinking Mithrobarzanes was there under false pretenses, the Pisidians attacked him and his men, leading to a three-sided melee in which Mithrabarzanes and his men were wiped out. The Pisidians were forced to flee, pursued by the rebel Cappadocian army, who took the opportunity to raid Pisidian villages. 
This raiding was important. To build up their own coffers and hire mercenaries, the rebel satraps of Anatolia would need bullion to melt down and mint coinage. With this Pisidian loot, Datames swung down to his old haunts in Cilicia and started minting new coins. So far, nothing was amiss. Hiring mercenaries was obviously just a way to beef up the next Egyptian campaign. Right? Greek mercenaries arrived the next year, and Datames took them north through his own territory. But payment was in arrears almost immediately. He had simply failed to mint enough coins to meet his own needs. To make up for this, he raided a Cappadocian temple, seizing its treasury and the ornate ritual vases, cups, and other vessels related to the temple's worship. The mercenaries were pleased, but soon disappointed when Datames informed them that they needed to find a mint to make all of this treasure into money. And the nearest one was in Amisos, one of the Greek colonies on the Black Sea. By now, Xenophon's Anabasis was complete and in circulation, and no Greek mercenary had any interest in spending the winter there. They told Datames they'd see him in the spring, but they would take winter quarters in much warmer southern Cappadocia. Datames had to go north alone. But for now, we need to jump over to Lydia and Caria and get caught up. Alone amongst the satraps of Anatolia, Autophrodates outright refused to participate in this revolt, which probably kneecapped the whole thing from the start. Lydia dominated the center of the peninsula, and without them, there was a giant hole in the rebel lines. In Caria, Hecatomnus had died back in 377, and now his son Mausolus had succeeded him as satrap. Like his father, Mausolus was often suspected of harboring rebellious feelings, but never acted on them. In 366, one of Mausolus's subjects accused him of some kind of financial crime. As Diodorus includes the Carian satrap as one of the rebels, it seems possible that Mausolus had started skimming off the royal tribute. Of course, Mausolus was satrap and king of the Carians, so he had the accuser executed. But with Atophrodates stubbornly refusing to rebel, and completely surrounding his territory, Mausolus abandoned any plans for rebellion and started cooperating with Lydia and the great king. Back with Datames, his mercenaries joined him at Amisos in the spring and marched west to Sinope. As the greatest port in his territory, with the largest number of ships at their disposal, and immense influence over the nearby Greek cities, Sinope was key to Datames' plan. He came to get them on board with the next phase. He told the Sinopeans that he and Ariobarzanes would attack Sestos, the Greek city on the Thracian side of the Hellespont. 
Sinope would gain control of the Black Sea trade, and the rebellion would have both Abydos and Sestos in its power to control access to the Sea of Marmara and strip the empire of its access to that economic resource. Sinope agreed to give Datames the ships, but the satrap turned them around just as soon as he had control and attacked Sinope itself, besieging the city with its own fleet. This seems like the most plausible place to include the betrayal of Datame's second son, Susanus. Three guesses where he was probably born. It seems plausible that Susanus had been having doubts for a while. After all, his grandfather had been killed trying to raise the alarm about Datame's rebellion. So Susanus fled to the royal court to warn Artaxerxes that outright revolt was spreading in the west. Not totally convinced and weary of anything that might distract from Egypt even more, Artaxerxes sent a letter ordering Datames to remove himself from Sinope at once. Datames did as the king asked paying the royal messengers all of the right respects and securing the ruse for just a little bit longer. That was all the time they needed. Sinope itself wasn't essential, but its ships were, and now Datames had them. Ariobarzanes had sent word to Athens that he needed mercenaries to support him in a campaign against the Odrysian Thracians apparently mimicking Cyrus the Younger's tactic of recruiting mercenaries under false pretenses. And now we're back to foreign affairs. Aside from watching Theban armies cross their territory to beat the dead Spartan horse, Athens hadn't been doing much lately. Sparta was purely on the defensive as Thebes backed everyone and anyone in the Peloponnese, whoever held a grudge against Sparta, which is to say, every single person there. They invaded the Peloponnese two more times, crushing the opposition over and over, and facing basically no enemies on the final attack. Thessaly got the same treatment. The Thessalian League tried to interfere in Theban and Macedonian politics. And when Epimonidas led an army there, he so outmaneuvered his opponents that they gave up without a fight. In 366, all of the Greek powers settled in for a new peace conference in Corinth, where everyone was basically forced to accept the new status quo by Thebes. The Boeotian League would not impose new governments if the existing government wasn't hostile but they were free to force anybody into their alliance under basically any pretext. Everyone else would abide by all of the other original terms in the king's peace, and an Athenian messenger was elected to take the terms to the Persian court for Artaxerxes to formally ratify the amendment. In the north, the reigning Odrysian king was Cotis, the father-in-law of Iphicrates I mentioned last episode. King Cotis had come to power with Athenian support in the 380s, 
but the rise of the Second Athenian League left them at odds. The Second League was within its right to recruit and offer aid to Greek colonies in Thrace, even those like Sestos and Byzantium that came right up to the Persian border. For centuries, the separation between Greek cities and Thracian tribes had been more or less assumed. But the Odrysian kingdom changed the dynamic. Ever since their rise to power, after Xerxes abandoned the province, the Odrysians had been expanding their kingdom and slowly centralizing power. In a certain light, the Odrysians seem a lot like the Medes back in the day, a web of marriage alliances and defensive pacts slowly consolidating around one royal family over the course of a century. If we draw out that comparison, King Cotis wanted to be the Syaxeres of his people, a conqueror who used his kingdom to rule other peoples as well as Thracians. So he began taking Greek cities from the Macedonian border to the Chersonese, almost all of which were in the Second League. This triggered the Athenian response. Initially, sending Iphicrates with another general named Karadimos to retake Amphipolis. They weren't successful, and rather than taking captured Thracians as slaves, they released them. Iphicrates always had a soft spot for Thrace, but now the Athenian assembly wanted to try them both for treason. So Iphicrates and Karadimos ran to Codus and offered to command his mercenaries. Iphicrates got cold feet when asked to besiege and capture more Athenian cities and ran off to live in exile, but Charidemos just started running the Thracian army. This was the perfect opportunity for Ariobarzanes. He invaded Sestos and used that as proof when he asked Athens to send a mercenary force to help him. Clearly, he was at war with the Thracians, not plotting a giant rebellion. Athens sent General Timotheus in 366 or 65 with orders to aid Ariobarzanes however he could without breaking the king's peace, which they had just amended and reaffirmed a few months earlier. By the time Timotheus arrived, Ariobarzanes and Datames' revolt was uncovered. Datames had backed off from Sestos and Sinope, but Ariobarzanes had taken them anyway, immediately after Artaxerxes told them not to. They stopped paying tribute, possibly still expecting Mausolus to support them, and the revolt became public knowledge. Timotheus and his troops diverted north, landing in the Chersonese and launching an independent campaign against Thrace, rather than join open rebellion against the great king. But yeah, sure, totally independent non-subjects. Whatever helps the Athenians sleep at night. Instead, Ariobarzanes turned to Sparta, and Sparta did not give a after years as Sparta's greatest military commander, Agesilus was old, bitter, and happy to reach out to his citizens and remaining friends in Greece 
to recruit mercenaries and send them east. The higher the rise, the harder the fall. And Agesilus had taken Sparta to the heights of invading and conquering territory all the way to the walls of Sardis. Then presided over the destruction of all of Sparta's power in Greece. What did they have to lose by breaking the king's peace? As far as he was concerned, Thebes had already done that. It wasn't a formal alliance with the Second Athenian League like they had hoped for, but it was enough for Ariobarzanes and Datames to resist the king. So by 365, it was open war with the rest of the Persian Empire. And that's where we will pick up next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.